0: You're listening to the Echo Community Church Podcast. We have a passion for being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we hope this podcast inspires you to take another step. Let's join our pastor for today's teaching from the Bible. This morning I want to talk about the the second of two ordinances of the church that, that we practice, and that is Holy Communion. And we're going to go into... Probably the most familiar passage in the Bible that teaches on that in the New Testament, First Corinthians chapter 11. If you've been in our church for any length of time as we study this, it'll be familiar. Some of you might be able to quote it from memory. And sometimes the challenge is when we go into something as Christians that's so familiar, we can start treating it as common. So I want to do the best that I can to elevate it in importance again today and have us kind of look at it. One more time, you know me, I like to nerd out and go way deep on all the background. And so I have to exercise restraint this morning because the more that I dig into the letter, the man who wrote the letter, the people who received the letter, what was going on in the city, all of those things start tumbling into this passage and it becomes more and more clear. Um, If we have to remember that 1 Corinthians was not written two weeks ago. 1 Corinthians was written 2,000 years ago. It wasn't written to western people it was written to eastern people it was written to people who lived in the city of corinth but who had converted either from judaism to christianity or from complete paganism and idolatry and idol worship to christianity and those two groups of people came together to form the church and so rather than nerding out on all the background i tried to condense it down to this much written in handwriting on what's the what do I want to make sure you absolutely understand before we read this this morning? You have to understand, like I just said, it, it comes from a letter. And it was a response. In other words, this is not someone who just wrote a letter to people they don't know. It was written by Paul. A couple of weeks ago, we studied from Romans. That's a letter he wrote to people he had never met. This week, we're studying Corinthians. Totally different. He knows these people. He knows them very well. And he spent a year and a half of his life with them on his second missionary journey. If you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 18 contains the report from Luke of what Paul actually did when he was with them the first time. Very eventful 18 months. Did not at all go smoothly. There was being dragged to court. There was... um, all kind, a mob formed against him at one point. When he shows up in Corinth on his missionary journey, he has one goal in mind, and that is to preach the gospel. He wants to tell people there about the gospel of Jesus. They hadn't heard it yet. So where does he go first? He goes to a Jewish synagogue in Greece, in, in Corinth. Corinth is the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia in Greece, Probably pro- population probably as high as 700,000 people. That's a big city. That's Baltimore big. It's a big city. And to the best that he knows, there's no followers of Jesus. there only because no one had been given the opportunity to say yes or no. Interestingly enough, because of the diaspora and the spread of the Jews, some Jews had resettled there and opened up a synagogue. So he goes there first, thinking that would be the most friendly place to start. And when he starts his 18 months there, he works a side job, making tents, And he goes to the Jewish synagogue and he starts teaching, but he's not teaching the Jewish history. He's teaching the Jewish history as it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And if you read through Acts 18, you'll find that some people received Jesus and believed and other people didn't receive Jesus and got angry and eventually unintentionally kind of split that church. But he led to the Lord, one of the leaders of the Jewish church who happened to live next door to the synagogue. So Paul just moves his services next door. And... Over the next 18 months, people came to Jesus, and Paul probably knew them all by name. And after 18 months, for a number of different reasons, he felt it was time for him to leave that church at Corinth you know, under their own local leadership and move on to Ephesus and to some other places on his missionary journey. And so he, gets, he hops on foot or gets in boats, and he moves on to the next town and leaves the church in their own hands with the expectation he's given them all the tools they need to succeed. Well, sometime later after he moves on, he starts getting letters and oral reports that are coming from the church at Corinth saying things are not going well. And he writes one letter, which we don't have in the Bible that he refers to in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I heard some bad news and I already sent you a letter on this, but now I'm hearing even more bad news and I have to send another letter, okay? This is the first letter we have in the Bible of this, but it's been a back and forth and things are not going well. There are some atrocious things going on in the church. And a lot of it stems from the fact that they were in the middle of a city that was known for two things. Luxury and pleasure. Corinth was very, very, very wealthy. Economic center, trade center. Ships from all over, the, all over that part of the world would go through their ports. And so when those ships were there unloading goods, they're making money from that. But then all the people on those ships have money to spend And that town offered all kinds of pleasure. It was, I know we have little ears in here, so I won't go into great detail, but you can, all kinds of pleasure. Aphrodite was the God that they worshiped. So you know what was going on in that city. That was normal culture. It did not feel wrong to them. So when people were getting saved and coming into the church, their consciences were still seared and there were sinful behaviors they were bringing into their church that were normal in their culture. They could keep sinning and it might not even bother them right away. Well, these things were taking hold in the church, and it was causing all kinds of divisions, friction, infighting, separatism, classism. And Paul has to start dealing with all these things. And Paul, the the tone of this letter is no nonsense, naming names, quoting sources, graphic, straight up confrontation. Now, it's not all confrontation. There's a lot of parts of this letter where he says, here's some good things that you're doing, and I want to affirm you for that. I'm glad you're meeting together. I'm glad you speak in tongues. I'm glad you believe in the power of God to heal. I'm glad you believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm glad you're preaching the gospel. These are good things. Then he also says, there's some other things that you're doing, and you probably think I'm going to pat you on the back. I'm not, because this is atrocious. It needs to stop, or you'll die. So with this in mind, tone is the hardest thing to assume when you're reading a letter. That's why some people are like, I don't want to do email because email loses tone. I want to have a face-to-face conversation. So with that in mind, what I'm going to do is just read this section a couple chunks at a time. I'll stop and make some application, and we'll keep trucking through. But now that you understand the groundwork here, let me go to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll read to verse 19. In the following instructions, instructions, I cannot praise you. So he starts saying, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. You just got done saying you did some good things. But in the following things, I can't praise you. It sounds, let this sentence sink in for a second. It sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together for church. Could you imagine the reality of a church whose services actually cause more harm than good? That when you come here, you leave discouraged? You leave ashamed. You leave hurt. You leave feeling more isolated than when you came in. You leave wounded. That's what he's saying is happening. He's saying when you get together, it's not even spiritually neutral. Your church gatherings are causing more harm than good. That's a stinging indictment. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. Verse 19. But of course... There must be divisions among you so that you, ha- you, you who have God's approval can be recognized and differentiated from the factions that don't have God's approval. Now, I can't comment on everything, but I want you to see his tone. He's about to talk about communion, he's about to talk about the Lord's Supper, but I want you to see his tone. Paul is clearly writing confrontationally. This is a blunt response to what he considers to be spiritual atrocities in the way they organized a church gathering, and the way they conducted their times for worship and prayer and fellowship, he sees atrocities here. And his diagnosis is that their church services are so filled with sin that the net result of their church service is causing more harm than good. And here's how he chooses to deal with it. You know how the church would have heard this letter? At their next gathering, They would have all, and they happened in houses. Churches, you know, their church didn't own property. It happened in houses. And we know from archaeological finds in Corinth that the biggest houses over there, even the outer courtyards, could fit maybe 70 people tops. So they would have gathered together, and one of their church leaders would have stood up and read this entire letter said, good news, everybody. We got a letter from Paul, our founding pastor today, that he wants us to read together out loud. And this is how they would have heard it. Cringy uncomfortable and if you read the whole letter he names names sometimes and other times he just says there's one of you that's sleeping with your stepmom you know who you are right he shows us a pattern here and he says you're supposed to be the body of christ and in the body of christ we don't sweep sin under the rug and he's saying as someone who was your leader and who you still turn to for leadership Now that I know the sin in your life, I have two choices. I can be quiet about this or I can deal with it. I'm going to choose to deal with it. And in choosing to deal with it, I could deal with it subtly, passively, aggressively, individually. And what he shows us is that it is incumbent on a good spiritual leader to deal with the sin of the people they lead. And so what he's showing is you deal with individual sin individually, but you deal with group sin as a group. He confronts them publicly. Group sin must be dealt with and confronted with the group. Here's my question. Is this practiced in modern churches today? Why or why not do you think that that is? What do you think would result from a similar approach to spiritual leaders and pastors dealing honestly about the sin And among its members in the modern church. I have a hypothesis as to why that doesn't happen often in this country. My hypothesis, I don't have a lot of time for it, but my hypothesis is that church would shrink down to this many people. Because generally we've become a people who don't want to be corrected. And if, if you get corrected, we generally write that person off and cancel them because we decide that's mean, that's offensive. Who do they think they are to tell me? this? That's not what I want to hear. Well, look at this person over here. They're not dealing with them. We're not a people who even embrace discipline anymore. We'd rather have leaders who just agree with us and do what we want them to do and have all of our opinions. And if they decide that they're gonna do something different than what we believe, we just find another leader. The good news, I have to jump way ahead, the good news is that what we're about to read, the evidence is they listened. Because in 2 Corinthians, he sends a letter and says, I hear now there's a revival that's broken out in your church. And that's obviously because they listened to what he's about to say. A lot more in this section, but I'll have to save that for another Sunday. Let's continue reading with verse 20. Actually, before I do, let me say this. Tone. I understand that there's... And I'm starting to understand more. There's a lot of modern Christians who don't put a lot of weight in Paul's writing in the New Testament because they don't like his style and they don't like him. I don't know if you're aware of this, or not, but there's a group there's a growing group of Christians who put less authority on Paul's words because they say this, he was angry, he was mean, he was a hothead, he had a temper, he seemed to fly off the handle. First of all, there's a difference between writing a letter and having a conversation. When you have a conversation, you might fly off the handle. But when you write a letter, you have time to think about what you're saying. A lot of times I counsel people if they're really upset about something, write it all out first, put it in a letter, but don't mail it. Write it out. You can think about it. You can put it away. You can sleep on it. You can edit it. You can revise it. This is a letter, not a conversation. Secondly, there's also tenderness in this passage you're going to see. The tone that I get from this, the closest analogy I could come up with is this. Some of you know I coach Chase's Little League team. I have 13 nine-year-olds that I spend four hours a week with in the evenings coaching them in baseball, and I get to know them and their families. It's one of the ways I'd like to be able to serve my community. It's a way for me to get to know people outside my circle. I'm not the coach that's all wrapped up in winning and losing and runs scored and stuff like that. I'm a competitive person by nature, but for some reason, when I coach Little League, it's the farthest thing from my... I want these kids to have a good time. I want to teach them some things about the game. I want them to make friends. I want it to be good for them and for their parents. I'm not, I don't yell. I just don't. If I yell, I'm yelling encouragement. I don't raise my voice. We just, we have a lot of fun and we learn together. There is one exception, and it happened at our second practice. Part of this playing baseball at this age is these kids swing 28, 29 inch aluminum baseball bats. And if you're not aware of your surroundings, I mean a kid can get enthusiastic and pick up his bat. And what do you, you know what they want to do with the bat when they're playing baseball? They want to take some practice swings, right? And if you're not aware of your surroundings, you can take a practice swing and swing that bat at full speed, come across and crack somebody right in the temple. It happened in this area not too long ago at a little league event. Child died, had to be lifelighted and died. Because in the warm-up, you know, back behind the bench, when one kid was not paying attention, he swung his bat as hard as he could, not seeing there was another player next to him, connected right with his temple. It's going to hurt you, or it's going to kill you. One of our last practices, I had the, the team split into two groups and had some adults over here and some adults working with me. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of the kids pick up a bat with another child standing two feet from him. He didn't see him, and he gets ready to go, and I stop what I'm doing, I said, knock it off, stop, drop the bat right now. Everybody into the infield, and you could see by their faces there. Some of the kids are like, oh, oh, no, what? They were shocked. There was some fear there because they heard a tone come out of me that they've never heard before. I said, everybody bring it in, take a knee. And I started talking about myself in the third person. I said, listen, you know Coach Phil is never gonna yell at you guys. I'm not going to get angry if you make a mistake on the field if you strike out i'm not gonna we're here to have fun i said there's one exception if i see you doing something that could hurt one of your teammates i'm going to do whatever i have to do to get you to stop even if it makes you scared if it makes you mad because i want you guys to protect one another and i said you cannot and i explained to them why you cannot do this do you understand (laughs) you know Sometimes you have to sting people out of their unawareness to prevent them from killing themselves or hurting somebody else. This is the tone I hear from Paul here. He loves these people. He led them to Jesus. This is not him just getting on his hobby horse. He goes on to say what you're do-. he actually goes on a few sentences from now to say What you're doing wrong in church has made God so angry that he's killed some of you. And some of you are sick physically because of it. It's God's judgment against you. And if you ignore this, more of you are going to die and get sick. So what does he do as a good coach? Does he just let them swing the bat because he's afraid of dealing with the fallout? Or does he change his tone to snap them to attention? He chooses B. In fact, later on, he says, my dear, right after all this, he starts going back. He calls them my dear brothers and sisters. He's saying, this is not, I'm not trying to punish you. There's a difference between discipline and punishment, right? Punishment, you're trying to wound somebody. Discipline, you're trying to correct somebody. He's trying to correct them. Let's keep going. So with that in mind, verse 20, he starts spelling it out. What specifically are the Corinthians doing that's got him worked up? When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Because some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, two things are happening in the same yard. One group of you is eating so much and drinking so much that you're getting hammered drunk. And the other group has so little to eat that you're going hungry. Within eyesight of each other. Verse 22. What? Don't you have your own homes? for eating and drinking, or do you really want to disgrace the whole church and shame people who come who are poor? What am I supposed to say here? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. What's going on here? Eating together as a church family was a huge part of the early church, and it's still supposed to be part of the church today, eating together, right? You can see that trend started the whole way back, in the book of Acts, right after Pentecost, it says one of the things they started, the new believers started doing every day was eating together, fellowshipping together in each other's home. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, I think verse 12, we find out that the church had two different meals. The early church had two different meals or times to eat together, at least two. One was called an agape or a love feast. The other one was called the Lord's Supper. The agape, the love feast, was more of a social fellowship type event. Everybody from the church would bring some food to contribute and they would sit around the same table and share it equally. The Lord's Supper was a totally different type of meal. This was a sacred ordinance of the church. It was about focusing upon Jesus and his body and his blood and deliverance and forgiveness and reflecting and examining our own hearts together as a church family, eating the same bread, drinking of the same cup, unified as one body together one meal was supposed to be more social. One meal was supposed to be sacred. And what Paul is saying, your social meals are not social. Your sacred meals are not sacred. You're mixing it all together. They were marketing their church meals as the Lord's Supper. But instead of practicing either the agape feast or the Lord's Supper, it looked more like the secular Corinthian banquet. In their city, they always had banquets. But it wasn't the poor people didn't get to come. The rich people did because they had the money to have banquets. And because we've got little ears here, I won't go into all the details about what went on at these banquets. But what the church was doing is say, well, yeah, I guess being a Christian means eating. Let's just let's we call it the Lord's Supper. We don't call it a banquet. We call it the Lord's Supper. So we're going to have a Lord's Supper every week. And what would happen is the wealthy people who weren't the working class or the poor would get there early, bring the best food, go to a part of the house and they would overeat by themselves and they would get drink to the point of drunkenness. And all that would be left is scraps and leftovers. And then what Paul says is then later on in the day, when the poor, the middle class, the working people got off of work and could come, number one, they couldn't contribute to the feast like the wealthy people could. The wealthy people would not share the food with them. They made them go to another part of the house. And these gatherings, which were supposed to be about coming together and, the, and, and being one body, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your status, actually became something that just reinforced the fact that this group is different from this group different from this group and we're all going to stick with our own kind and he says this is the complete opposite of what the lord's supper is supposed to be about saying the lord's supper is about unity being one body in christ not a dismembered body of the wealthy people over here the middle class over here the poor people over here it's not about, you know, this ethnicity over here and this ethnicity over here. It's not about the married people over here and the single people here and the widowed people here. It's not about the old over here. and the, It's not about the people who like the new worship and about the people who like the old hymns. It's about everybody coming together and being one. He says, outside of your church, it's all fragmented. Inside the church, it's not supposed to be, but you've put that on front street. I can't praise you for that. This is about Jesus's blood. Not your belly. It's about Jesus' body, not your carnal life. It's about Jesus, not about you. And you have made the Lord's supper into an occasion which is neither social. It's not sacred. It's all secular. And as a result, people are leaving these gatherings either too drunk to remember what happened, or so hungry and even more aware. Don't ever have a lot of. Really, don't have time to illustrate this. But um, I don't know. I guess because of my upbringing and the general economic class I've been in most of my life, I can't say that I've experienced many times in my life where because of my ethnicity or my gender or my race that I personally felt excluded. A few times, but not a lot. That's not the same as many of your stories. I can tell you, though, that I have many times, many times felt excluded or looked down upon because of my economic class whether it's just getting on an airplane on an international flight and having to board in first class and walk the whole way past all those nice seats back to the back. Or unfortunately, whether it's just been in circles of ministers, many of whom are in a different economic class and say different things or do different things to remind me that they're in a different earning class than I am. It feels terrible when you feel ashamed, especially as a man. As a man, you feel, that's what I do, that's what I do. As a man, you look at yourself and there's just a sense of shame. It's not even jealousy or anger, it's just shame. And what Paul is saying is, the way they were practicing the Lord's Supper at their church heaped shame on the have-nots or the have-less, and it was absolutely... uh, complete indifference and neutrality from those who had more they're not even they're seeing hungry people in the corner looking at their plates with crumbs and paul saying how can you be a follower of jesus and see this in front of your own eyes and feel nothing this is a problem got to continue on let's keep going He's trying to sting them out of their stupor as an instrument that the Holy Spirit can use to transform the way they think. They have to think differently. Now he gets on to the part of the passage that's more familiar to us. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's keep reading in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between god and his people it's an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it let's keep reading for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup you're announcing the lord's death until he comes again verse 27 so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body of the Lord and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread, before drinking the cup. For if if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and you're sick and some have even died. Wow. Verse 31, "But, but if we would examine ourselves, We wouldn't be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined. So we won't be condemned along with the rest of the world. Man, is there a lot of uncomfortable stuff in here. Um, Here's what Paul's getting at. First thing he says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Have you ever thought about that? Paul's saying, I'm passing on to you something." I am not the inventor of communion, is what Paul's saying. The Lord's Supper is not something I sat down and brainstormed and imagined and came up with and wrote it into Christianity. He's saying it is a sacred ordinance that he got directly from Jesus himself. Now, when would Paul have gotten directly from Jesus the revelation about what Holy Communion really is? Was Paul at the Last Supper? No. He was not at the Last Supper, so he wasn't in the room when Jesus modeled the pattern he wanted us to follow. Truth is, I don't have enough time. Truth is, there's a lot of possibilities about where he might have gotten this revelation directly from Jesus right after he got saved, maybe for the three years he was in Arabia just having an intensive seminary experience with Jesus. Maybe it's just that during that time, obviously, if Jesus spoke obviously and clearly to to Saul, to Paul on the road to Damascus, that he, he could have also talked to him openly in other ways. Maybe he received it from the eyewitness apostles. He had relationship with them, the apostles that were stationed in Jerusalem. They could have passed it along to Paul. Maybe he had an early copy of Luke's gospel. Maybe there were fragments of that gospel that were being, so I, I don't know. But what he's driving home is this is, communion is not something the church invented and the church can't customize it. It came from God. He designed it. He defined it. Jesus tells us the who, the what, the when, the how, and the why of communion. And that's not up for us to customize. So he's saying what I'm telling you is authoritative. This is not my opinion. And then he gives them the basic blueprint for communion. And let me show it to you. The basic blueprint for communion that Paul passes along is as follows. Examine, remember, partake. That's the basic blueprint. Starts with Examination what follows is remembering, and then ultimately we're to partake. None of his instructions about communion are to encourage you to not partake. Don't read it that way. He's not trying to exclude people from taking communion because guess what? If you decide there's sin in my heart that I don't want to deal with, I'm going to protect myself from judgment by not taking communion. You're still not excusing yourself from judgment. What you're saying is there's sin I don't want to deal with, so to stay safe, I won't take communion. No, it's kind of a catch-22, because if there's sin you don't want to deal with, you're in danger of judgment whether you take communion or not. The goal is using communion as an occasion for me to pause and reflect and say, if there's sin in my heart I've not repented for, now's an occasion for me to do it so I can partake, partaking. Paul's saying communion is not supposed to be a burden, it's a blessing. It's not something that God invented to trap you every week into getting judged. It's supposed to be something that's so beautiful, so intimate, so sacred a moment of examination, remembrance, and drawing closer to Christ that we would look forward to this and do everything necessary in order to be eligible to participate not to use it as a reason to feel excluded. So understand, first thing he wants us to do is to examine ourselves. We treat the Lord's Supper in reverence and in an attitude of humble examination. We begin the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to examine yourself? It means dealing with your own sin honestly. If you detect sin in your heart, we confess it to the Lord, we repent from it, we receive his forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, cleanse us from unrighteousness, and then we put it aside. That's what it means. We just deal with our own sin honestly. Examining our hearts isn't meant to keep you from communion. It's meant to prepare you to receive it with the right heart. Examination shouldn't push you farther away from Jesus. Examination should draw us closer to him. that's how the Lord suffers to begin. Ah, I don't have time for that one keep going. Well, no, I probably shouldn't because if, if you leave thinking about this wrong way. Paul warns us that irreverent conduct at communion invites the Lord's corrective discipline. Did you see that? You saw that when we read through there? He warns them. He's like, look, if you don't do this with the right attitude and with the right heart, you're inviting judgment upon yourself. In fact, judgment has already come upon you. And he says, in some cases, God's judgment has been so extreme that he's made some of you sick and some of you have died as a result of Treating this with irreverence. And the question we're all answering is, um, does God still do that today? Should I be worried about this? Here's the way that I would respond to that. Don't ever think that God can't strike someone with sickness or even death if they sin. Let's not put God God would never do that. Don't push him. Okay? Truth is, that's the consequence we all deserve every sin but god doesn't always drop that on you instantaneously but paul actually explains this to it paul stresses that this judgment is corrective in purpose what he's saying is the re this is such a mouthful deserves a whole sermon what paul is saying is that god's motivation in striking some of you with sickness or death is to prevent that person from being condemned with the rest of the world. He's saying this judgment, as extreme as it is, is still corrective and redemptive in nature versus the condemning punishment that awaits the rest of the world. It's almost like what God is saying is, it's better for me to strike you with sickness or even take you home now rather than allowing you to continue to do damage to yourself and to the kingdom. And the reason I'm doing that is to spare you from the type of judgment I'd have to give you that the rest of the world is waiting for. He's still stressing to the people, you don't want this kind of judgment on you. And the only way this judgment falls on you is if you refuse to examine your heart and to repent from your sin. That message still preaches today. There is judgment waiting for us from God if we refuse to examine our heart at all. Or if we examine of our, our heart and we see sin there and we decide to push it aside, to push it off, to keep it secret, to not deal with it, to rationalize it, there's judgment. Well, what's the escape? Simple, judge yourself first. You and the Holy Spirit do a fearless moral inventory of your heart and examine yourself. And Paul says, if you examine your own heart regularly, God's gonna bring up, you're gonna see some sin there and you can deal with that yourself. You can repent for it. Ask forgiveness, push it aside. Then God doesn't have to add his judgment on top of your negligence. That's the whole mouthful of that whole sentence. The solution deal with your sin honestly. Confess it to the Lord. Repent from it. Move it aside. And then partake. Second thing of communion, remember. So we examine first, then we remember. A couple things he says to remember remember the Last Supper. We're supposed to remember the Passover meal led by Jesus for his disciples the evening prior to his crucifixion in which he explained the significance of the bread and the cup, his death, his resurrection, and the new covenant. We're supposed to remember that. We're supposed to remember God's deliverance. At the Passover, the Jews remember that God delivered them from slavery and he spared them from death. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt And he spared them from the death angel in the final plague by putting the blood of a sinless lamb on their door. And in the same way, those of us who are involved in this new covenant with God, we remember that God has delivered us from the slavery of sin and he has spared us from death from the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. We're also supposed to remember Jesus' body and blood. Now, if you've ever uh, used some of the matzah bread, the matzah crackers, the unleavened bread, Paul stresses that Jesus says to... We're supposed to remember his body, which is, the bread is symbolic of that. And they would have used unleavened bread in the Passover. It was bread without yeast. Yeast was symbolic of sin. And so the idea was they ate bread that didn't have sin incorporated in it. And they treat it like like Jesus' body. Jesus is saying, my body is without sin. It is sinless. There's no yeast here. But also when they would have baked that bread, two things would have happened. Number one, it would have been scorched. From the fire. Second thing is as it cooked, little holes appeared in it so it would have little holes throughout it. If you get matzo bread or crackers today, you'll see literally stripes on the bread and holes from where it was cooked. And what Jesus is saying is this bread is symbolic of my body that is given for you without sin. It's Isaiah 53, the stripes have been put on me and even a hole pressed in my side, but this is my body which I give to you broken for you we're supposed to remember that regularly because there's something about keeping that fresh in our mind that keeps us close to christ okay we're supposed to think of jesus's blood not in a gory vampire way but he told the disciples in that in, in, in the last supper he says my blood is going to establish a new covenant we're in a covenant now at the time of the passover jesus would have said and we're in a covenant but I'm going to give a better covenant. This is a new covenant, and it's a blood covenant, just like the old one, but it's not going to be the blood of one of your lambs, one of your cows, one of your birds. It's not going to be the blood of one of your animals anymore. It's going to be my blood that the signature is the guarantee on the covenant, and it's going to change everything about your relationship with God. The main thing that it did, uh, the the, the three main things that the new covenant did was it, it brought an inner transformation which cleanses from sin. It's not just an outer transformation. It's an inner transformation. It writes God's word and his will not on tablets of stone, but on our heart. And it forms a newer and close and personal relationship with God. We don't have to have a relationship with God through a priest, through a mediator. You and I now can have a personal relationship with God. That's not maintained based on the blood of one of our pets, it's based on the blood of Jesus. And it changes everything about our relationship with God. And Jesus was very clear. He says, you know, remember my betrayal, my death, my body, my blood. It's not about your food, your meals, your cliques, your preferences. The Corinthians are making the Lord's Supper all about them. They were making church all about their preferences. Jesus says the church gathering is not about your preferences. It's about me. It's about my life, my hope, my joy, my strength. And friends, that is a warning to us today. And it's something you're going to have to be very discerning in your own heart. How much of your evaluation of your personal church experience, whether it's this church or another one, really is based upon the criteria of how this church delivers to your preferences versus how true this church is to the Bible and to Christ. Because there is enormous pressure on pastors, on churches, on leaders, in order to remain relevant, viable, and funded, to have to cater to different preferences of different people versus the tension of saying, we need to be true to what the word teaches. We need to be true to what the Lord says, even if it's not popular, even if it causes some to be offended, even if they're not mature enough to be able to hear it, we still have to live along the side. It's a challenge to each of our hearts to examine. So we examine, we remember, and ultimately we partake. We, part- we eat the bread we drink the cup and what happens practically there, you're taking a little wafer, in our case that looks like styrofoam, right, and some red juice in our church. We don't use wine, we use juice. We're eating those symbols. We don't believe they were crucifying Jesus all over again. He did it once for all. We don't believe it turns into something other than what it is because when Jesus handed out bread to his disciples, it stayed bread. When he handed out the cup, it stayed cup. It didn't turn into, he says, it's a sim- symbol of that right? But what's happening is you're going to eat that bread and it's going to break down and dissolve And in a matter of moments. That bread is now going to become part of you. We are what we eat, right? Somehow that bread is going to become part of you. That juice, as soon as you drink it and it goes into your body, it's now part of you. It's not juice anymore. It's part of you. It's in you and it becomes part of you. And in the same way, it's a reminder that in Christ, he is in us. He becomes part of us. We take all of him in, and now it's him who lives in us. It's him who gives us energy. It's him who gives us strength. It's him who gives us identity. It's him who gives us hope. It's him who gives us purpose. We examine, we remember, we partake. And then he kind of ties the section up, not with a period, but with a dot, dot, dot. Watch how he does it. So, and now here comes the tenderness. My dear brothers and sisters, that's not sarcasm. It's kind of like he recognizes, he anticipates this could come across really hard. I need to reaffirm the relationship here. I'm not angry at you. I'm like the coach who's saying you're doing something that is making you sick and it's causing some of you to need to die and you need to stop because I love you. You don't want this. I don't don't know, guys, if they knew better. I don't know if he had already laid out the blueprint for the Lord's Supper and they were ignoring it. I don't know if he had laid it out before they didn't take it seriously. I don't know if they were sinning out of ignorance or out of intention, but in either way, the judgment is very real. And he says, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other was a word kind of specifically for them we don't eat in shifts here but they did and they ate in shifts not as a matter of convenience but as a way to separate the wealthy from the poor and the wealthy weren't even thinking they were entering into a time they were calling the Lord's supper being completely ignorant of the rest of the body of the christ who couldn't get there on time if you're really hungry and you want to have a big meal that's not what communion is for eat at home so that you won't bring judgment on yourselves when you meet together. Here's the dot, dot, dot. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. I don't know what the other matters were. But obviously, this wasn't the full conversation they needed to have about the Lord's Supper. But it was enough. He said, when we come together, we're one body, not three, not two, we're one. And the Lord's Supper is about us coming around the same table, rich and poor, young and old. Married and unmarried, and everything in, in between, and examining our hearts together, confessing sin, receiving repentance together. It is a sacred moment for us as a church to pause, examine, remember. You know what remember means? It means to take something from the past and bring it into active present tense. And I think a lot of times we need to treat Jesus not as just the God of yesterday and tomorrow because he is of the past and the future. He's also in the active present. And communion is simply a moment for that. Well, what should I be expecting? Chill bumps, tears, hallelujahs. Don't put expectations on it. Just quietly, humbly open your heart up to him and let him just be present. Whatever that feels like. Whatever that is. Whatever that means. Let him be active and present. We're going to do that together this morning Keith, team, would you come back? Really, the question that I want to encourage you to to use when you examine your heart is this one. Does my life really honor Jesus' work on the cross? Is my life today something that God can look at and say, that honors me? If the answer is no, then you do a little more digging with the Holy Spirit and say, what is it about my life right now that's dishonoring to Jesus? that's dishonoring his work on the cross that's making a mockery of what he did by saying i don't need to live like that's a reality i can live any old way i want we're going to practice this together this morning i hope that you were able to get um some com- a communion cup on your way. if you didn't have a great time it's just there there's a there's a basket of them back in the back um right by the doors and the hand sanitizer if you didn't get one please help yourself um, we practice open communion here. That means you don't have to be a member of Echo Community Church. Paul wasn't trying to be exclusive here. He says, it would be awesome if everybody could partake, but we need to make sure our hearts are right first. And the first question is, are you right with the Lord this morning? I, like Pastor James said last week, if I look around here this morning, I have, I'm fam- there's not any one of you I'm not familiar with to some degree. I hope and I believe that we're all on our way to heaven. I'm taking your word for it. Fruit and evidence there. But the truth is, I don't really know what's in your heart between you and the Lord. And so all I want to do first is just pause as a church. And let's just examine our hearts together before we take communion together. Can we do that, Keith? You can go ahead and play quietly. Let's just take a moment. Just kind of quiet our hearts. Friend, if you don't know the Lord at all, if you've never confessed your sin to him, if you've never made a decision to put your faith in him, or submitted your life to his leadership? That's, that's the very basic question for all of us, every human being. And if you've not made that decision, but you are ready to and you want to, you'd like to. Right now, in this moment of examination, you can pray a prayer of confession to the Lord. He will hear you, He's listening, He's ready. He's, Jesus has already done the work of forgiveness. He's just waiting for you to receive it. To acknowledge that you need it, that you want it, that you want his leadership in your life, Do you want to submit to him. You can pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I am guilty of living life by my own rules. And I know I deserve your judgment and your punishment. But I'm overjoyed to know That there's another option for me, that you, Jesus, have paid for my sins. You've taken the punishment that I deserved in my place so that I can receive your righteousness. I can receive forgiveness. I can receive a new life. I want that. Please forgive me for my sins. I believe, Jesus, your God's son who died on the cross in my place and you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive today. I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. I choose to give up the leadership role in my life. And I want you to be my leader. You're my king. You're my Lord. Now I'm your follower. Friends, let's just examine our own hearts just for a moment. God, search us, seek us, you know us. In this moment of intimacy with you, we pause. Lord, if there's anything in our lives that doesn't honor you, if there's anything in my life that's sinful, that needs to be put under your blood, confessed, repented for, forgiven, and put aside, God, please, Please do that work in us right now so that as we enter into communion, we can experience just the full measure of togetherness and the active and present. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Echo Community Church podcast. If today's message impacted you or you want to talk about one of the topics we discussed today, email us at info at echochurchmd.com. We would love to connect with you online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching our church name, Echo Community Church. Send a message or leave a comment to at Echo Community Church and let's continue the conversation. And if you live locally in Baltimore County, Maryland, we invite you to our Sunday worship experience. You can find out more on our website at echochurchonline.com.